Fighting Through Podcast, episode 90. Alf Blackburn's War Memoirs, part 2. More great unpublished history. Welcome back to Alf Blackburn's War Memoirs, part 2. Alf is somewhere in the middle of Sicily when his convoy is attacked. Here's a short repeat of where the action had got to in the previous episode. Then we'll be straight back into where we left off. Down the road in the valley, our transport was also pulling in for the night, along with the light machine gun carriers that accompanied us on minor sorties. Rennie and I were halfway through our shave when suddenly, over the top of the hill, down came the Messerschmitts and the fighter bombers, some of which had already discarded their bombs so they would strafe us with cannon fire. They flew down in single file, strafing along the middle of the road, knocking hell out of our transport and shooting up the carriers. Rennie and I were in a good position to observe all of this. However, things quickly took a turn for the worse when over the hill appeared a fifth plane and this was carrying a massive bomb. It looked massive to us, because it was flying so low and appeared to be just over our heads. As he zoomed down towards the convoy, this huge bomb was detached. We were presented with a very eerie sight as this huge, vicious-looking black bomb on being released seemed to be hanging in the air, nose pointing downwards. It appeared to be aimed directly between our eyes. Rennie and I looked at the bomb, and then we looked at each other, and together dived under some rocks, terrified. We held our breath, dreading the impact, convinced that it was about to land right on top of our toe caps. As it happened, it passed safely over us and landed right in the middle of our carriers that were on the road at the bottom of the valley below us. The carnage that followed was almost indescribable. We were covered in debris and rubble that the bomb threw up as it exploded. We knew there wasn't another bomb to come because that was the last aircraft, so we looked around to see what damage had been done. What a terrific mess it had caused. Five carriers had been hit and some were completely gone, along with many lives. An inquiry was later held to establish why the carriers were in such a vulnerable position. The enemy aircraft found them absolutely wide open and exposed. It was impossible to get the trajectory of the Beauforts down quick enough to fire at the planes as they were flying so close to the ground. Rennie and I stood up and tried to finish our shave. It was difficult as we were shaking so much. We contemplated as to how fortunate we had been. If our position had been just a little further down the road then the outcome would have been completely different. Still, that would have been the price of war. We rested overnight, and the following morning 
we moved out, heading towards Lentini, which would be the site of our next skirmish. In my opinion, this and following battles did not have the same severity as the desert. Don't get me wrong, we were still in danger of being shot and killed, and if the Germans entered into any battle, they put everything into it. Believe me, we still had our hands full, as it were, but to me, there was no comparison to the desert battles. The Germans' main concern was to hold us up while they pulled out as many of their troops over the Messina Strait as was possible. They were beginning their retreat from the island, and only fought selected battles as and when the need arose to slow us down. Onwards to Lentini We pressed on to Lentini, and after one or two skirmishes, successfully secured it and dug in on the outskirts. On reflection, my attitude to the battles we had in this country must have been influenced by the sheer beauty of the place. We had the sea to our right, with mountains and rolling hills to both the left and ahead of us. There were isolated villages scattered here and there, some on top of these hills which appeared most inaccessible. All along our line of advance we never lost sight of the sea, and at one stage found ourselves walking along the cliff edge with amazing views below. One such view was at Teomina, with its blue lagoons and incredibly clear water surrounded by rocks. Apparently, this was a favourite holiday destination for the wealthy of the time, and I could certainly see why. It was impossible to not be affected by such beauty. It was in total conflict with the job that we were there to do. I was in charge of the section, because the previous corporal had been moved, mainly due to the fact that he lost all credibility and respect from the men. I didn't mind being in charge, as my role wasn't really altered. I was still on the gun, and we were all pals, all in it together. It was always the case that the person we looked to for leadership was the one with the most experience, which at this time happened to be me. Whilst dug in for the night, we would try to get as much rest as possible, taking our turn to be on guard. It was difficult countryside for guard duty, because in the dark, every bush, peach or olive tree looks like a person moving in the darkness. At the time... We had a young lad from Hartlepool going by the name of Totty assigned to our unit. I'm afraid he was somewhat lacking in common sense, and I wondered how he'd managed to get to us. I rather assumed he'd been rejected from every other unit in the British Army before being finally sent to us. Still, he was here, and he had to take his turn on lookout along with everybody else. To enable each person to get to the lookout post and back again in the dark, we had a long piece of white tape going from one position to the other. This we held on to and used as a guide, and if someone returned displaying a sense of urgency, we would all stand to. It was Totty's turn for lookout duty, and I was just dozing off when suddenly he appeared running like hell, shouting, They're coming! They're coming! Within seconds the whole platoon was standing too. 
it turned out to be a false alarm, and there was absolutely nothing there. Not a thing. This started to become a regular occurrence on Totty's watch, and after a few false alarms, I went to Ted Burton and told him that he would have to get rid of him, as he was more of a liability than an asset. He had everyone on edge, and the men just couldn't rely on him. So they moved Totty out, where to I did not know, but I hoped he was okay. He was a decent lad, just not cut out for the job we had to do. Personally, I thought he would have been better off in the Pioneer Corps or something similar. He definitely didn't belong with us. I'm not saying that the rest of us had the highest intellect, but at least we had the necessary acumen needed to survive in the environment we were in. Every morning, at first light, we would stand up and look out over the valley. It was usually misty first thing, and cleared once the sun came up. It was the morning after Totty's departure, and we were standing waiting for the mist to clear. Then suddenly, just as it was beginning to clear, we could see two helmets bobbing about in the distance, but were unable to identify them, as they were just too far away. Although we could see only two people, we couldn't be certain until they got nearer, so our best course of action was to lie doggo, with weapons at the ready. I got down behind the gun, and dropped the sights to zero, and lined in on them. They were making quite a bit of noise as they advanced, coming closer and closer through the mist. At the last split second, someone shouted, they're two of our fellows. Believe you me, they were the two luckiest men on the island at that moment, because in two more yards they would have copped the lot. Looking through the sight of the gun, it was impossible for me to distinguish their nationality, and the obvious assumption on seeing men approaching from in front of us was that the enemy was sending out an early morning patrol. My finger was on the trigger, squeezing gently and holding my breath ready to go. They came so close to paying the price. It was only because of the sharp eyesight of one of our team that a tragedy was averted. After a few shouts they located us and ran to join our section. I was about to tear a strip off them when I could see that they were obviously too far gone gabbling incoherently. Apparently, they'd gone out on patrol the previous night and somehow managed to get themselves in between the two opposing lines. They were miles away from where they should have been, trying to find their own regiment, but were glad to have found us. They were blissfully unaware of just how close they'd come to being shot and killed. It doesn't bear thinking about how we would have felt if we'd shot two of our own. We stayed in that position for a few days, then pushed on into the countryside to the north of Lentini, with Mount Etna visible in the distance. It was an incredible sight, and seemed a lot closer than it actually was. Scattered in the countryside were farmhouses and outbuildings which were surrounded by dry stone walling and these huge fences made from cactus plants which must have been 12 feet high or more. 
The cactus reminded me of the old commie-cut pictures that we used to see in newspapers. Big, oval-shaped leaves covered in spikes with cactus pears. We cleared the farmhouse and took up our positions. It covered a large amount of land, including the house, various outbuildings and a dry well in the farmyard. Sergeant Errington and Lance Corporal Till occupied the dry well, whilst Rennie and I positioned ourselves by the dry stone wall underneath the cactus. We hadn't been there long when we came under attack from German mortar bombs. After the first bomb dropped, I immediately thought that we dropped right into range of one of the German positions, and that we should be getting out of there as soon as possible. One of the bombs in the first salvo fell either directly onto or next to the dry stone well, and Sergeant Errington was killed. I don't know if Till was wounded, but he jumped out of there and ran across the farmyard, straight through the cactus hedge and over the dry stone wall. He then ran like hell down the hill, heading towards the regimental aid post, which was two miles away but the Red Cross post was clearly visible from our position. The last I saw of him was his blonde hair disappearing down the valley as he bobbed in and out of the shrubbery. Although we felt reasonably safe behind the stone wall and were well dug in, something made me feel uneasy, and I told Rennie that we should vacate the area. But by then, the second salvo was on its way. The bombs fell in salvos of six, and we decided to stick it out until after the sixth bomb. We counted the impacts of each bomb, hoping that none of them would land on top of us. Luckily for us, that didn't happen, and as soon as the sixth had dropped, we threw the gun and magazines on top of the wall, jumped over and ran like hell for the rocks. But when we were halfway there, the German gunner spotted us and sprayed us with machine gun bullets. Fortunately, his bullets fell behind us as we ran and we made it safely to the rocks, which continued to be peppered with machine gun fire. We had to lie there for over an hour, waiting until the tide of battle had flowed over. We were then able to stand up and take stock of our situation, and decided to return to check on the farm buildings. Where once there stood a sturdy stone wall that we had to climb over, there was now a gap enabling us to walk straight through. The wall and all the cacti had been completely completely demolished along with all the farm buildings. Nothing would have been able to survive in there. Rennie and I looked at each other knowingly, realising just how close we'd come to death, and he assured me that from then on he would trust my judgement on any future decisions. I'm sure others would have made the same decision to move out of there, but it was still very comforting to know that I'd done the right thing. Of course, had I not made that decision, I wouldn't be here to relate this account. When this battle was over, we moved from our position and started to advance with Mount Etna ahead of us. Since landing at Avala, it always seemed that we were heading straight for Etna, 
but it was just that it happened to coincide and be in the line of our advance. Primasoli Bridge Our instructions were to reach the first wet river in Sicily, the River Semito. In July 1943, British paratroopers were waiting to be dropped into Sicily, their objective being the Primasoli Bridge. They successfully took out the Italian garrisons at the bridge. However, the Germans had already dropped an elite group of their own paratroopers because they also realised the strategic importance of the bridge. I later learned that these were the battle-hardened Fallschirmjäger troops, sometimes known as the Green Devils. The British paras drop didn't go too well and were too scattered, with only a small percentage making it to the bridge itself. They fought well, but were running out of ammunition, and so the decision was made to pull back. Then the task of taking this river, and the bridge that crossed it, was given to the men of the Durham Light Infantry. This was one of the many regiments that made up the British Army at the time. Although each of these regiments was based in their own area, the men that served in them could come from all over the country. So in the Durhams it was possible to have men from as far afield as Kent, Scotland, Wales or Cornwall for example. But each and every one of them had a great allegiance to their respective regiment. If we had done one operation less and reached the river first, it would have been down to us to take the bridge. We'd been probing the area looking for the river, but in the event the task of taking it fell to the Durhams. It turned out to be one of the bloodiest battles I had the good fortune to not have been part of. That's just how the cookie crumbled. We took up our position just south of the river, and the Durhams passed through us in the early hours and took up their positions ready to assault the river crossing at midnight. The river was about as wide as the River Weir at Chesterley Street in the northeast, which is approximately 150 feet. There were steep banks on either side covered in very tall reeds. In fact, some of them were head height and a person could be completely hidden in them. Spanning the river was a metal bridge, the Primasoli Bridge, which reminded me of the bridge at Fatfield near Washington in County Durham. As I said previously, the Germans had dropped one of their crack paratrooper regiments at the bridge. They'd taken up position overlooking the river in the cover of the reeds. When the Durhams began their assault, they were waiting for them, and one of the bloodiest battles of the war ensued. I could only imagine the bitter hand-to-hand -hand fighting that went on before the Durhams finally overwhelmed the German paratroopers. The achievements of the Durham Light Infantry, the DLI, that night cannot be underestimated because those paratroopers were the cream of the German army. They had been sent there to fight until the end, to try and take control of the bridge so that the rest of their army could pull back over the Messina Straits. But that night it was the Durhams that were victorious. It was one of the highest and most courageous achievements that had been my privilege to witness. And I wondered if we would have been able to do the job that the DLI did that night. 
We were very close by, waiting in case they called on us for assistance. How they didn't call for help, I'll never know, as we could hear the battle going on, and it seemed like every yard of ground had to be fought for by hand-to-hand combat before they finally took control of the bridge. A monument was erected at the Primasoli Bridge for the men of the Durham Light Infantry, and occasionally I meet people who either had a relative or had simply heard of someone that died at Primasoli. They couldn't possibly have any real comprehension of the achievements of those brave men and the losses that they sustained. I personally believe that every man who took part in that particular assault was deserving of the VC at the very least, because we had to advance through the position after it had been taken to consolidate it, and we saw the carnage for ourselves. We dug in among the reeds in an area which was given the name Stinky Valley, because when the sun came up, and warmed up the bodies that were still lying where they fell, the stench was unbearable. We had to get a bulldozer to clear them, as it was impossible to find them, as they were well hidden in the reeds. Once the bulldozer had done its job, we were then able to cover the bodies to reduce the risk of disease spreading. We would go on sorties through the reeds down to the river, and one morning, about two days after the battle, Rennie and I were out on patrol when we came upon a dead German paratrooper still lying behind his gun in the reeds. He had a bayonet sticking out from his back, still with a rifle attached. I imagine that he'd been stumbled upon accidentally and the bayonet had been plunged in a hurry. It did seem odd that the rifle had been left behind, but it was a reminder of how Bitter and ferocious the fighting was in this encounter. No praise is too great for the lads that fought in the battle for Primasoli. It was the Battle of Sicily to me, and it's opened the way for the army to move on to Messina. Not taking this bridge would have had an incalculable effect upon future operations. Coming from County Durham myself, I couldn't help but feel an enormous sense of pride and deemed it a privilege to have been associated with them. We moved out and headed towards Catania, one of the largest towns in Sicily. It lies at the foot of Mount Etna with a plain in front known as the Catania Plain. This was the last battle in Sicily that our division was to take part in, and we dug ourselves in on the plain to await further developments. Soon afterwards we received a visit from our brigadier, who I would describe as a harem-scarum individual. Although we had lots of derogatory nicknames for him, such as Shaggy, Shagnasty or Ginger, because of his massive ginger hair, he was actually held in high regard by the whole brigade, mainly because of the way that he showed readiness to be in the firing line, and we quite enjoyed his outspokenness. Until that day, I hadn't had any close contact with him. He was there to inspect the divisions and their positions ahead of the battle for Catania. As he approached our section, we were a little apprehensive about what he was going to say. We were dug in with our guns at the ready. 
He tapped one of the guns with his walking stick and said, What would you do if the Germans came running across that field? There was a brief pause. Then in unison we said, Kill them, sir. He replied with, That's the idea. Don't take any prisoners. Kill the bastards. That was the kind of situation that he relished. Then, as he walked closer to me, accompanied by Claude Hull, he asked if there was anything that we wanted. As it happened, we had absolutely no cigarettes at all, and so I thought, in for a penny, in for a pound, and informed the brigadier. During the war, cigarettes were considered to be a staple part of the army's provisions, so he expressed his horror to Claude Hull, and promised that we'd have our cigarettes by the afternoon. Sure enough, the afternoon came, and we were each issued with thirty cigarettes. I wasn't sure what Claude Hull's opinion on the matter was, but I remember thinking at the time that he could go to hell. The men were deserving of those cigarettes, as they'd all entered into many battles without the comforts that they were entitled to, some of them sharing dog ends. The fact that as soon as the brigadier realised we had no cigarettes, and they were forthcoming, proved to us that they were available if someone only had the inclination to put in a request. So, we got our cigarettes, and I will always remember Shag for that. As I said, we were dug in on the Catania plain, and as we lay there, the smoke from Mount Etna was clearly visible. We had to probe the area in front of us as we advanced towards Etna, checking for the enemy. Whilst out on patrol one day, we were crossing through some orange groves, and had only just entered the groves, when suddenly an Italian soldier jumped out waving a white flag. He was fortunate that we didn't immediately shoot him. He wanted us to follow him, and was gesturing in the direction that he wanted us to go. Obviously, we were very cautious, and prodded him to lead the way. He then led us to a glade deep in the centre of the orange grove. Here we found two trestle tables, covered with white tablecloths, on top of which were bottles of wine and dishes of nuts. There were about fifteen Italians, and it turned out they were waiting to surrender. The wine was there open and ready, <laughs> waiting for the first British troops to get there. We were still unsure of the situation, keeping one eye open, watching for any treachery, but there was nothing to worry about. They just wanted to give themselves up, as they could see that the British were taking control of Sicily. One of them even wanted to join us to fight the Germans, who were once his ally. This, of course, was out of the question, and as he was sticking with us, we had to eventually forcibly eject him. The political situation at the time was the Italians had given up, and wanted the whole thing to be over with, now that their allies, the Germans, were not doing so well. Previously, they'd wanted to be aligned with the successful German expeditions. I couldn't help but temper their current behaviour with what had passed before. Although I wouldn't describe the Italians as a warlike race, I found it difficult to understand their political stance, which led them to take up arms on Germany's side in the first place. But that's all water under the bridge now. 
We went on probing the area and fought a couple more skirmishes, and then after a few house-to-house sorties, Catania fell to us. After its capitulation, we were given permission to have a look around part of the town, only part, because three-quarters of it was out of bounds to troops. There was really nothing to see, the shops were in no position to do any trading, and so, all in all, the visit to Catania was a bit of a damp fizz. Listener, I'm just going to pause for a second to explain some of the background noises we keep getting. It's the RAF planes flying around. They're obviously out on manoeuvres and exercises, and that, strangely, that's, that's following President Zelensky of Ukraine's visit to Britain yesterday and uh, there's talk about whether or not Britain's going to lend some planes to the Ukraine to fight the Russians. Here comes another one. I'm going to ignore the planes from now on. I'm just going to let it be a background watermark to the episode to um, just to mark the occasion really. All is not well in the world as we record the Fighting Through podcast. And so we move on to Letterjani. We moved forward along the coast road, passing various villages on the way, and eventually came to a small fishing village called Letterjani, which was situated approximately 25 miles south of Messina. It was decided that the battalion HQ would be billeted in one of the empty houses and we were given a large abandoned building that had either been a hotel or a civic centre. Firstly, we had to clean it up as it was an absolute mess. Hostilities had ceased, but one of our brigades had pushed on ahead over the Messina Straits to take up and form a beachhead on the other side. This was to provide protection for the rest of the army and supplies as they passed through, just as a precaution against any counter-attack. Apart from that, the campaign was virtually over and we were to take up our positions in the billet which we'd cleaned out. That was basically the end of the Sicilian campaign and it was time to sort out and collect our gear together. We'd have liked to have had some sort of keepsake to remember the place, but as I've already explained, it was a very poor area with very little to buy. I picked a couple of lemons and found a few almonds which I stuffed in my kit bag as keepsakes to take back to England. Then we headed about 50 miles north to Augusta to embark and return to England and begin training for the invasion of Europe. So ends this extract from Alf Blackburn's war memoirs. Alf returns safely to Britain in order to train and prepare for D-Day, the invasion of Normandy. The remaining chapters in his book cover this in detail, including the brutal D-Day landing on Gold Beach. I've got quite a lot more material to share with you in the PS shortly, so stay with me. For now, thank you so very much for your support and for making the time to listen to me. And if you get a chance please do post a review of the pod on the platform of your choice. I do read them all. Above all, enjoy the show and please do hear me next time.
P.S. To kick the ball rolling, I just want to share what Jim King said to me about Alf, his father-in-law. He said, Alf was a very unassuming, modest man, like I suspect a lot of them were. They were brought up in a different time, a time when they knew their duty to king and country and simply joined up to go and do their bit. Heroes, the lot of them. Jim and Jan, thank you for your efforts over many years for bringing this piece of history to the fore and thank you for helping me to close another chapter on the background to some of Dad's comrades and thank you again for letting me share some of it on the Fighting Through World War II podcast. I'd also like to acknowledge Michael Shaw's important role in all of this because it was Michael who first started the ball rolling by contacting me via my website. In turn, although many years later, this produced the connection with Jim and Jan. What a great result. Michael, in some of the correspondence, you mentioned that there's a group in Keithley called Men of Worth. Keithley is in the Worth Valley, Yorkshire. Men of Worth research and share a historical interest in notable men of the town, starting with all the names on the war memorials. There's a link in the episode notes. I was ridiculously spoilt for choice over which passages to share for this podcast. And if you want to read The Lion's Share, then you need to buy this book. Daughter Jan has spent years literally producing it and publishing it. And there's a link to the book on Amazon in the episode notes and also one in the news banner at the top of the home page. It's called Alf Blackburn's War Memoirs. It's well written well-produced and well-researched, and it's stuffed full of stories that bring you right to the front line. You experience how the soldiers ate, washed and fought, as Alf takes you from mobilisation to Africa, Tunisia, Sicily and D-Day. By any measure, this is a great memoir. Oh, my word. The link's in the episode notes in your listening app, and for a short period in the banner at the top of my website, fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. I'm now going to share a great passage with you from Alf's book. This is um, just a short episode from a a good bit on D-Day, but this will give you the flavour of what sort of action you're going to get. As we were approaching the beach, I could already see a landing craft grounded. It just reached the beach when the whole lot exploded. It was awful to see. Flames and smoke were shooting about a hundred and feet in the air. This was the first craft to touch land, and whether it had hit a mine or received a direct hit, I wasn't too sure but I thought the explosion looked like it might have been a direct hit from an 88mm. The sea was very choppy as we were nearing the beaches and preparing for ramps down. I'd been expecting to feel the bottom of the boat grinding on dry land, but that didn't happen. The command was given ramps down, but there was no dry land and the first section ran out in single file. 
As each man got to the end of the ramp, there seemed to be some hesitation, and it was only when it was my turn that I could see why this was. I was leading the second section, and when I got onto the ramp, the last man from the first section was still standing at the end of the ramp. I was right behind him, but he didn't move, so I said, Come on, John, and gave him a gentle push. He had obviously been hit with shrapnel or something as he stood there and fell into the water surrounded by blood. I stepped off the boat and I thought I was going to meet Father Neptune as the water came right up to my shoulders and covered all the gear that I was carrying. In fact, there was only my head and a little bit of shoulder protruding. So I turned to the sailor on the craft and said, Could you not get the bloody boat a bit closer? He did look somewhat astounded, but it seemed a bit ridiculous to me that we were so far out from the shore and the water was that deep. There was a lot of debris floating in the water, and also stakes dug into the bottom, with only about a foot visible. I started to move forward as best I could, with shells hitting the water straight ahead of me. When the shells hit, shrapnel flew off and skimmed across the sea towards me. It reminded me of someone skimming pebbles at the beach, but these were far more dangerous, and with only my head and shoulders above the waterline, it was quite disconcerting seeing them bouncing towards me. As I was moving forward, I came upon a commando who shouted, I'm wounded! I'm wounded! Sure enough, he had a large gash in the top of his thigh, but he was still walking, and the wound wasn't life-threatening. On reflection, my reaction must have seemed rather absurd, as my main concern was what he'd done with the LMG, the light machine gun. He told me that he'd dropped it, and I just said, Oh man, what did you do that for? I'm still amused to this day at my attitude. I know that he was wounded, but that machine gun was a very important piece of equipment. I told him to get back on the boat, even though the assault craft were not supposed to pick people up. Their job was to get everyone off, then leave. However, as the last section was leaving the boat, the wounded from the first were trying to get back in. Carrying on with D-Day now, this is about a mission set to Alf and his comrades to capture a German prisoner. And Alf sets the ball rolling. We were tasked on D-Day with landing and making our way to a coppice on some high ground, about seven miles inland. Once there, we were to take prisoners that were wanted urgently by intelligence back in England. The troops guarding the area were known as smoke troops, firing smoke mortars to aid concealment. But our company had to push through it and get there regardless, even if we only managed to get one prisoner. Knowing my companions from previous sorties, I thought we'd have trouble hanging on to one. As I look back now to those events, it's difficult to visualise just how ruthless we'd become. Returning to the briefings, I was a little cynical about certain aspects of the Enterprise. 
Some of our officers were inexperienced in battle, and we had new junior officers. Our commanding officer had never seen a shot fired in anger, yet looked on the whole affair with extreme optimism and impatience to get on with things. He laughed at my pessimism and caution. He was such a gentleman that I was reluctant to dampen his enthusiasm. I had no illusions about our friends with the jackboots. They were professionals. I'd met them in the desert and in Sicily, and I knew that every inch of ground would have to be fought over. So... Our hero progresses successfully up Gold Beach, read about that in the book, and onwards. On the aerial photographs that we'd studied prior to the landings, we'd seen that there was an area of discoloured ground in a pasture field that we had to cross. We believed that this was a tunnel leading to and from the spinney that we were tasked to take. Sure enough, as we got about halfway across the pasture, the discoloured ground was clearly visible, winding like a ribbon straight to the spinney. We whipped the guns around and slung in a couple of two-inch mortar bombs straight into the spinney, then bang, bang, and off we went into the attack. The tanks rumbled along so far, then stopped to let us do our thing, but also remaining at the ready to direct fire onto the spinney if required. We headed for the coppice with only the occasional shot coming our way. There was no machine gun fire and only one lad dropped after he'd been shot in the ankle. We kept going and made it into the coppice and once there we spread out and were running around everywhere. I saw about six German soldiers head down to what looked at first like an anti-tank ditch, but was in fact an entrance to a tunnel. They dashed into the tunnel, and so I positioned myself at the bridge of the opening, loaded the Bren gun, pointed it into the tunnel, and fired. Our second lieutenant arrived and wanted to know what was going on. When I told him what had happened, he suggested that I go in after them. I, to <laughs> I told him in no uncertain language that I didn't think that was a very good idea, following it up with, I'm not going in there, give them a few minutes and let them come out, I said. We could hear shouting coming from inside the tunnel, and then after a minute or two, out walked the biggest German that I had ever seen in my life. He seemed to be about seven feet tall and was Built like a battleship. What a man. He looked to be a true Prussian, complete with scar on his cheek. I'd always found Germans looked terrifying at the best of times, and this huge man appeared with his jacket slung over his shoulder in typical Teutonic fashion. He was wearing a soft cap and riding breeches, and looked very arrogant when he strode out. However... All credit to him because he was the first out and was taking quite a chance as I'd already sent one magazine down the tunnel and there was another one on the gun at the ready. Out he came, still wearing his revolver with the remnants of his section following behind. We were absolutely over the moon to have captured a prisoner of his calibre. This was exactly what we were there for. 
We moved to take his revolver, but he had other ideas. As an officer, he thought he was untouchable and felt that he should be able to keep his gun. Get it off him, I said. We can't have any Germans wandering around here carrying revolvers. He relinquished the revolver to the second lieutenant, which I suppose would have... <laughs> Sorry, it's just a good, it's a good section, this. I'll start again. <laughs> he relinquished the revolver to the second lieutenant, which I suppose would have been a good souvenir for him, as long as he managed to take it home. Last to come out of the tunnel were the walking wounded, and they were in a sorry plight. I saw at first hand the results of my own workmanship and was immediately filled with remorse. It was a rare occasion that anyone was confronted with the results of their own actions as I was on that day. I knew that I was responsible for all the wounds that had been inflicted upon them and wanted to do as much as I could for those lads. Although realistically there wasn't much I could do apart from give them a drink of water or a cigarette. This was the reality of war, and there wasn't any point brooding about it. There could have been one or two dead in the tunnel, but as far as I was aware, no one checked. We'd taken the position, and as was usual, once a position was taken, we had to move off it quickly. We knew that the ranges on those positions were very precisely known, and the enemy knew exactly where to lay their fire down so it was important to get out of the area as fast as we could. We didn't necessarily have to move too far, just out of the German range. We then started to comb the rest of the spinney, which was pretty dense in places, for any strays that could be concealed there. At that time, we had a Scottish lad with us, whose skin was so dark from his time in the desert that he looked more Asiatic than Scottish. He was carrying a Thompson submachine gun, and I was walking about four yards behind him. We were approaching a bush when suddenly, bang, he spun round and unloaded the magazine of his machine gun into and around the bush. He then turned to me and said, Did you no see that? Look at my shoulder. Sure enough, a bullet had cut his shoulder strap and burned his tunic. He had wasted no time in emptying that magazine, and the stupid German had paid the price. I call him stupid because he should have realised that in those given circumstances it was futile to stay and fight. The time had come for him to surrender, but he had one last very brave show of force, doing his duty, and unfortunately paid for that one stupid gesture with his life. As Jim observed on this incident, the soldier wasn't that worried about killing the man, he was more bothered about his ripped jacket. They had become animals. A short postscript to Alf's war memoirs now. Um, this is how his war ended. It, it ended when he was blown up by a mortar bomb, two weeks after D-Day and a fragment of metal shrapnel penetrated his helmet, embedding itself into his head. He was clearly lucky to survive, and that was very largely 
due to it having occurred only 50 yards from an advanced field hospital. When the first bomb dropped, it was too close. I knew when it dropped, it was almost on top of us, and I just had time to think, good gracious, this is it. The next one blew me up in the air, and I didn't know what hit me. The whole world seemed to burst, and the noise in my head was absolutely terrific. It's hard to describe, but it was like being in a swimming baths that was so full of screaming children that you'd dive under the water to get away from the sound. But when you resurface, the noise is absolutely overwhelming. The whole world seemed to be revolving round and round. Everything was spinning, and I thought, Good God, I'm dying! Well, Alf didn't die, because he survived to uh, record his memoirs to his daughter. And the rest is great published history. Um, that's it for Alf's war memoirs. Um, I'm going to share with you, as a closing section, uh, a video I did recording the area of Gold Beach where the Green Howards landed. Um, there's no video, obviously, because this is a podcast, but I'm going to share the audio with you because it's still quite good. And uh, I'm also going to share with you a number of comments I've had from people on my YouTube channel. So uh, here's the audio first of all. So this is me on Gold Beach in Normandy, modern times, <laughs> obviously. And it's a windy day. Hello there, anybody who's just tuned in. I've just started. I'm Paul Chielson of Bill Cheel. I'm at Gold Beach right now, which is one of the British beaches, not far from a place called Aramanche. And on the morning of 6th of June, 7.25, which was H hour, my dad was just approaching the beach on a landing craft. And the 6th and 7th Green Howards and the 5th East York's regiments came over from Southampton on a ship called the Empire Lance and they all gradually got off the ship into landing craft and the run-in was to take two hours and during that two hours the soldiers got thoroughly seasick but eventually the time came for this first wave of troops to land on the beach and as they were approaching the beach, a few hundred yards still in, in the water, Company Sergeant Major Stan Hollis, who was later to be awarded the VC, the Victoria Cross, the only one awarded on D-Day, he saw just behind the beach a pillbox that wasn't marked on the maps. And he decided he'd give, better give whoever was in the pillbox a, a warning to skedaddle and he fired some warning shots from his Bren gun. We'll come back to that in a minute. But as the landing craft was approaching the beach, the helmsman shouted, 100 to go, 75 to go, 50 to go, 
25 to go ramp going down now and my dad and his pals all spilled out over the ramp into three or four feet of water and started scrambling out of the water to get onto the beach and at this point one young soldier Rufty Hill jumped into a shell hole underneath the water and as he went into the water the landing craft surged forward on a wave and drowned and crushed him beneath the boat as dad jumped off the landing craft the soldier in front of him and behind him was shot killed hell get moving he said as the boys scrambled up the beach they had a few hundred yards to run because it was mid-tide so they had to dodge bullets and all sorts and there was a, a knocked out Sherman tank on the beach Dad described it sitting helpless like some monster because it was a flail tank which had a huge great roll of chains out the front of it which were meant to kill were meant to uh, blow up landmines Behind the tank was Captain Lynn and he was wounded but he was waving the men off the beach but as he was doing that he got shot again and he was killed. Captain Chambers took over and he too was wounded but he managed to carry on. The view you've got at the moment is either side of the central landing point and there's quite a wide expanse of beach in both directions and there were troops landing all the way along this beach but this little bit here was the focal point leading up between the houses I think on the day they probably didn't come through this point because they would have expected it to have been heavily watched by the machine the German guns etc anyway Captain Chambers was shouting off the beach lads off the beach get off the bloody beach and give the buggers hell that the men didn't need any more urging though they already knew what they had to do and for a brief moment they'd get as far as the rocks in front which is the seawall and finally they got off the beach that was the main danger over and once they got over the beach they could relax a little bit but this was the route off the beach up to a place called Crepon and further up in the distance you can see what was commonly known as the house with a circular drive which was a, a landmark for the troops to gather and that wasn't far off a gun battery that the Green Howards had to target called the Montfleury gun battery but just coming up now is the pillbox that Stan Hollis targeted and when the troops passed it they realised it wasn't a pillbox but a tram shelter and you can actually see on the corner here all the pockmarks that Stan's gun made when he fired at it and this is now a shrine to the Green Howards that landed in particular Stan Hollis who was awarded the Victoria Cross as I say so that's the end of that 
broadcast. Thanks for that, Paul. <laughs> um, don't apply to be on Look East, or you might end up in the middle of Great Yarmouth covering the story about that huge bomb. Oh, dear. Do you know, it's funny, but during the period of creating and editing this episode, the, the latest news, I don't know why I'm laughing, the latest news is that the bomb has gone off accidentally. So they've been trying to um, cut it open and drill it out and, you know, disarm it or whatever. And uh, thankfully, nobody was close by it, but it did go off. Huge grey cloud of muck in the air and um, the only saving grace is that all the residents who'd been and businesses who'd been evacuated for the duration of something which I think was approaching four days are all absolutely delighted that it went off because finally it's safe and they can go back to their houses <laughs> oh dear me you couldn't make it up Brian Moss we could have done with you I've got a few little family stories coming up now, or really just short anecdotes. These were posted on my YouTube channel, and there's a link in the show notes to my YouTube channel. And if you explore it, you'll see a lot of the episodes from the podcast. But earlier on in the sequence, there's a lot of other videos on other aspects of the war, re revolving around my visits to cemeteries and all sorts of things. So, take a shifty. Before we go on to these family anecdotes, just a couple of uh, items of business, for want of a better word. I must apologise for my voice over the last two episodes, because uh, some of the time I was absolutely full of cold, and um, the podcast, I'm afraid, got the tail end of my chesty cough. So, apologies for that. Um, also... Of course, Alf's book, Alf Blackburn's War Memoirs. It is a really good read and um, it deserves your support. Um, Chan has spent years doing this and she's written it really well. I, I'm seriously impressed and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. So there's copious links all over the shop really. Top of the website, in the show notes, um, you name it. And... It's print-on-demand in uh, America and Britain, I'm pretty sure. Um, so if you order it from America, you may need to look for it on the American Amazon website. So if you can't find it on the links I've provided, that's your solution. Here's the postings against my uh, Gold Beach video on YouTube. NVW said, Thank you, Paul, for telling us your dad's story. Very moving. My granddad, John Wilcox, also landed on Gold Beach, H plus two hours on the day. He was a sergeant major with the Royal Artillery Tank Division. RIP to all those brave men who put their lives on the line for our freedom. And Sean Mayo said, My step-grandfather, John Cummer, was a gunner's mate on one of the American LCIs that landed UK troops on Gold Beach. His ship was carrying the 50th Northumbrians. That's my dad and Alf, etc. He retired an officer 
and was the man who swore me into my own service in the Navy. And I had the very great privilege to escort him on a trip to the 70th anniversary of D-Day. We managed to bring him to the place where his ship grounded on D-Day. Thank you for remembering and for sharing your father's perspective of that historic day. Brian James My ex-father-in-law was at Gold Beach, second wave in. He jumped off the side of his landing craft and sunk to the bottom. He got to the beach, minus his backpack and gun. He said he soon found a gun on the beach. He was wounded by shrapnel at Tillisieux-Sur, it's not far from where Dad got wounded, and was shot in the back by a German trying to execute him. After the war, he married a Canadian wren. His saying was, live and let live. R.I.P. Joe Easton, a wonderful man. Thank you, you guys, for taking the trouble to post those uh, little anecdotes to share. How great they are. Um, I think that's the end of the show. I really do. You've had two episodes worth there. Um, take care. God bless. May your coughs, colds, chests, aches and pains be short-lived. May your army boots bring you comfort. See you again soon. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. <laughs>